Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. New Books in Southeast Asian Studies is sponsored by the ANU Southeast Asia Institute, the Griffith Asia Institute, the New York Southeast Asia Network, the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies, and the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Patrick Jory. I teach Southeast Asian history at the University of Queensland, Australia, and I'm co-host of this channel. In popular understandings of the modern history of Vietnam, we are familiar with Ho Chi Minh's anti-imperialism, but we know much less about the anti-communist nationalism of South Vietnam, officially the Republic of Vietnam, or the RVN. The RVN tends to be viewed as a creation of the French and later a puppet of the Americans, but as Nguyen Tran shows in her book, Disunion, Anti-Communist Nationalism and the Making of the Republic of Vietnam, The RVN was also heir to a revolutionary tradition that developed out of the anti-French resistance, but which was quite distinct from the communist one to the north. Although the many different political and religious factions in the south shared a fierce anti-communism, the RVN was plagued by disunity. And ironically, despite the democratic ideals that these groups claimed to advocate, the RVN was subject to authoritarian rule for most of its brief existence. Today I'm talking with the book's author, Nguyen Tran, who teaches Southeast Asian history in the Department of History and at the Asian and Asian American Studies Institute at the University of Connecticut. Nguyen, thanks so much for coming on New Books in Southeast Asian Studies. Thank you for having me. It's very kind of you to invite me. Could I start off perhaps by asking you how you became interested in the history of Vietnam? So I became interested in the history of Vietnam largely because of my own background. I was born in Vietnam, and my family came to the United States as refugees. I grew up in the United States listening to my parents' stories about the Vietnam War, about the Republic of Vietnam, and about their life in post-war Saigon. And in many ways, my parents' past was sort of like this lost world to me, because the regime with which they identified, the Republic of Vietnam, was no longer around and no longer existed. So I could never experience what they experienced firsthand. And on top of that, I left Vietnam when I was too young to have any memories of the place. My childhood was also took place before the normalization relations between Vietnam and the United States. So in many ways, I was cut off from Vietnam throughout my childhood. And although my parents talked a lot about the war, that never seemed like enough to me because I had all these questions about the war and about the Republic of Vietnam that they couldn't answer. And then at school, I learned a very different history of the Vietnam War. And I learned a very different history from American books. But that version of history was mostly about the Americans. And that version of history really couldn't answer any of my questions about Vietnam either. And I think this, ex- this experience that I'm describing is really common among Vietnamese Americans of my generation, where we learn one version from our parents, if we learn at all, and then we learn a different version in school and through the popular American media. 
And when I've listened to radio interviews with, from uh, Vietnamese American authors of my generation, a common sentiment I hear from them is that they don't believe that history can capture their family's experiences, especially their family's experiences of the war. And this explains their decision to write a novel or write a memoir or conduct oral history interviews with their parents. And I think a part of the reason behind that sentiment is that the history that they've been exposed to is so American-centered. But unlike many of these Vietnamese American writers, I think I traveled in the opposite direction. I felt like the oral history I received from my parents couldn't answer questions I had about the broader politics and culture of the Republic of Vietnam. And I really liked literature as a teenager, but I felt that literature couldn't answer my questions because a memoir or a novel just couldn't tell me about the larger social and economic context. And I realized it's not that history couldn't capture my family's experience. It's just that the history I had been exposed to failed to do so. And that made me want to write history that was about Vietnamese experiences of the Vietnam War period, experiences that went far beyond my family or any specific family. The modern history of Vietnam is a pretty well-studied field, largely, as you suggested, just then due to the American involvement. So can you kind of encapsulate for the, the audience what is special about your book? Can you give you, the listeners a general overview of what you're trying to do in your book? Sure. So much of the history of modern Vietnam, as it's been written in the English language, is about Vietnamese communists. And much of the scholarship, was, which was written roughly between the mid-60s up until, say, I would say the late 80s, maybe up into even to the early 90s, is largely depicted that commun communism is the main trend in modern Vietnamese history. That the modern Vietnamese history is the history of communists who are the flag bearers of Vietnamese nationalism and is about their struggle to overthrow French colonialism and then defeat American neo-imperialism and finally achieve this dream of independence that all Vietnamese people wanted. I think I'm exaggerating a little, but just a little about the, the and how I characterize that scholarship. What I try to do in my book is I try to explain the Republic of Vietnam and its domestic politics. And I try to do it in such a way that explains the relationship between the Republic of Vietnam and the larger span of Vietnamese history in the 20th century. I argue that the, the struggle against French colonialism was not just a communist phenomenon, that actually, and its origins was less communist and more republican. That is, it was it adopted the French republicanism from the French colonial period. It believed in ideas like democracy and civil liberties. However, some of the members of this early revolutionary movement became dissatisfied with republicanism because they realized that the French were not going to implement the republicanism in Vietnam despite championing republicanism back in France. Some of these revolutionaries abandoned republicanism to choose communism. But other revolutionaries rejected communism because they still believe in this dream of a republic that wasn't based on class, but that was based on all ethnic Vietnamese. These groups, I call this group anti-communist nationalists. They remain true to this vision of republicanism and nationalism and they reject communism. And they are the people, their ideas and many of these specific individuals are the ones who go on to dominate the politics in the Republic of Vietnam. The book is, is really rich in detail, especially about the various political and religious factions in South Vietnam and this huge cast of characters that you discuss who were influential on the, the political scene of South Vietnam at the time. Can you tell us about the source material that you used to construct this uh, fascinating study? 
Sure. So some of the source materials that I use are the type of sources that many that historians who have written on the Republic of Vietnam before me have used. So most books on the Ngo Dinh Diem period, the period of the Republic of Vietnam that was under the rule of Ngo Dinh Diem, its first leader, most books on that period published since the 2000s have used both American archives and Vietnamese archives, archival sources. They've also used both American and Vietnamese published sources. And thus, this was a great move for a long time. Most books about Vietnam did not actually use Vietnamese sources. However, one of the, one of the problems, I think, with this scholarship is that it, it was focused, or I should say, the focus of the scholarship was on Ngo Dinh Diem's relationship with the United States. It was about international relations. So this dual focus meant that the amount of attention they devoted to Vietnam was going to be limited because they also wanted to write about the United States. I want to move the focus away from international relations to look more squarely at Vietnam. And because of that, I use probably fewer American archival sources than these authors, but instead I use a wider range and larger volume of Vietnamese language sources. So I use more Vietnamese archival sources from the same archives. I also use more historical newspapers, that is newspapers that were published in the Republic of Vietnam in the 50s and 60s by various political parties and groups. This gives us a sense of the, the great diversity of political views that existed in the Republic of Vietnam. I also use many Vietnamese language memoirs by former politicians and activists, including some that have not been used by scholars before. And I also use what I call informal archives. I'm not really sure what to call them. So there are a number of Vietnamese religious organizations and political parties located outside of Vietnam that have published their own accounts of their histories and put up the, their, the documents that are important to their histories online. And I make use of those, those collections. And those collections are really important because many of those f- sources are not available in the Vietnamese archives themselves. Early in the book, you summarise the main strands of Western scholarship on Vietnam since the end of French colonial rule in, in the 1950s. And you situate your own book within a body of scholarship about Vietnam that has emerged quite recently, which you call the fifth wave. Can you describe the various strands of scholarship and especially uh, the fifth wave for us? Sure. So I kind of talk about, I start with describing the first wave of the scholarship, and I, I hope I'm getting this right. It's been a while since, I've, oh, since I wrote the introduction to the book. But the first wave is, was mostly written by Western scholars, Western journalists, and people who were not trained scholars, but maybe they were aid workers, who went to Vietnam in the 50s and early 60s because they wanted to understand this regime that the United States decided to back. The scholarship is really useful because these people had firsthand experience with the Republic of Vietnam under the Ngo Dinh Diem period. However, most of the people writing this were Westerners who didn't know Vietnamese. And so they couldn't always make sense of Vietnamese politics. They couldn't read local newspapers. They couldn't understand political speeches in the local language. The next wave to come along was conducted by people who were scholars who were trained in, who were trained in the Vietnamese language. These were the Vietnam scholars, but most of them were interested more in the communists than the anti-communist Republic of Vietnam. So that wave really didn't produce as much serious, useful scholarship about the Republic of Vietnam. I think compounding the, the problem 
is, is another school of scholarship I call the, the American diplomatic historians. That American diplomatic historians are largely interested in the history of foreign relations. And for a long time, American diplomatic historians did not learn Vietnamese, even when they wrote about the Vietnam War. So the way they wrote about the Republic of Vietnam was largely as an appendage or as an extension of what was going on in the United States. A lot of this changed in the early 2000s with what's known as the New Vietnam War Scholarship. I describe this as sort of the fourth wave. This was scholarship, I think I mentioned this earlier, by people who were mostly American diplomatic historians who did learn Vietnamese and who were able to go back to Vietnam to do research because of the normalization relations between the United States and Vietnam. And so their research is is distinct by its multi-archival nature, using both American and Vietnamese archives. I think of my work as belonging to this emerging fifth wave, where we often do take that multi-archival approach, but our work centers more squarely on Vietnam and uses more Vietnamese sources and often brings out greater diversity within Vietnam because we use a greater number of sources, of Vietnamese sources. One of the things that's striking about the book is that the French and the Americans are hardly visible in your history of South Vietnam. Your, your focus is more on the, the various political factions and the religious uh, organisations. Of course, you don't obviously ignore the reality of French and American power, but the way you approach the subject makes it harder to argue that anti-communism was an ideology forced on you know, South Vietnamese by the, by the Americans or, or that the South Vietnamese uh, government was a puppet of the Americans. Was that your intention when you were writing the book? I think, well, when I wrote the book, I did really want to understand, to make, put Vietnamese actors at the center. As far as the anti-communism, my dissertation project, which I walked away from and is not the basis for the book, my dissertation, in my dissertation, I try to talk about anti-communism and what I found in my research on the dissertation is that Vietnamese anti-communism does not come from the West, but it grows out of this experience within Vietnam in the clash between communists and anti-communist nationalists. So there were groups who described their antipathy or their hatred of communism, not in terms of the Cold War, but what the communists did to their political leader or what they did to their religious leader. So in that sense, I I think that I, I did want to show the origins of the of the origins of anti-communist nationalism. That is, I wanted to show why these anti-communist nationalists hated communism. And in the process of trying to answer that question, I found that it was largely because of events that took place in Vietnam. It's not because of events that took place in the Soviet Union or the United States. I think that answers your question, I hope. Yeah. <laughs> One of the things your book absolutely does do is provide a kind of a genealogy of anti-communism in Vietnam, once you move away from the framework that it's this Cold War sort of imposition on Vietnam, we see the history. Um, can, can you explain, uh, you know, when did anti-communism sort of begin in Vietnam and how it how it evolved? I think the so the, the scholarship on the colonial period, which I do not do original language resource on research on. I don't do primary source research on the colonial period. The scholarship in the colonial period suggests that anti-communism actually arrived in Vietnam prior to communism. That that there were French publications, often French language newspapers or French language or newspaper coverage of say the Russian Revolution. Most of it in French, but I think I believe some of it in Vietnamese too, was very anti-communist in its depiction of the Russian Revolution. So anti-communism in Vietnam is actually quite old in, in that sense. 
when, when I would dis- start describing as anti-communist nationalism, I would pinpoint the 20s and 30s when the revolutionary movement, the anti-colonial revolutionary movement in Vietnam starts to split between those who decide to reject republicanism in favor of communism and those who become very anti-communist and remain republican. And there's a number of reasons for that split. And it's a gradual split. But the reason for that split is that a, a disagreement on how they understand the world and what they want the country to look like. So the communists largely wanted to create what would become a people's democracy. So a government that was based primarily or led by the Vietnamese working class and peasantry, whereas the anti-communist nationalists wanted to create a democratic republic that was based on all ethnic Vietnamese. So it was very different visions of the future. The moment where I would say this gradual division becomes an irrevocable schism was in about 1945 to about 1953, I would say that time period. It's because there were violent clashes between communists and anti-communists. And after that clash, it no longer is really possible for these two groups to get along anymore, or these two strands of the revolutionary movement to really get along. One of the highlights of the book is the um, the way you show the diversity of political thinking amongst the anti-communist nationalists in the South. It's, a, it's really a book about ideas. Can you uh, describe these different strands of political thinking you know, among the different anti-communist groups in the Republic of Vietnam at this time? Sure. So the way I see it is that in different ways, all of these groups inherit the republicanism of the revolutionary movement. So they continue to believe in the concept of democracy, but they define democracy in different ways. Now, part of it has to do with their their ideological origins during the late colonial period. Part of it has to do with their opposition to communism and their experience with communism. So by the time that Vietnam was partitioned by the Geneva Agreement in 1954, many anti-communist nationalists who, had, who were in the southern zone decided that communism was so dangerous that they had to find a way to be a democracy without, without succumbing to communism, without making themselves vulnerable to communism. And so they both wanted democracy, but they also feared democracy because they they wanted democracy because they thought it was more legitimate. They liked the idea of popular sovereignty, but they were afraid of democracy because they were afraid that an open political system would lend itself to communist subversion and then they'd be overthrown by communism, by the communists. And so they took different positions on how democratic the, the government should be. Ngo Dinh Diem and his political faction were the most illiberal. They wanted the least amount of democracy, or what we would understand of democracy, although in their terms, they believed that in a different form of democracy. They believed in a democracy defined by personalism, this French Catholic philosophy, especially identified with Emmanuel Mounier. So Ngo Dinh Diem and his political faction believed that there's no final political form that they're aiming at. It's not a democratic republic. That's not the final political form that they want to want to create. That instead, democracy is this continuous struggle to enable people to fulfill their potentials. So any political form is just a temporary, temporary moment in a in an ongoing struggle. At the same time, Ngo Dinh Diem, some of Ngo Dinh Diem's advisors were also very authoritarian. And so they they were a little bit more they were a little more interested in ho- holding on to power, I would argue, than really creating a personalist democracy. 
You've already mentioned him. One of the key figures in the book is uh, Ngo Dinh Diem, the president of the RVN from 1955 until his assassination in 1963. Can you tell us a little bit more about the man, his background, and also his very politically influential family that figure so largely during this period? Ngo Dinh Diem came from a Mandarin family in central Vietnam around the area of Hue, the old imperial capital. His family is originally from a little village area outside of Hue. And they were a very prominent family, in this, especially in central Vietnam. And they had a long, sort of illustrious history of serving the last imperial court. They're also a very important Catholic family. And they're a very educated family, so they they were probably they, they probably belonged to one of the most prominent families in Vietnam during the late colonial period. Ngo Dinh Diem and his family, you know, one thing that's really remarkable I'd say say about Ngo Dinh Diem and his family is that more so than any other political group of this period, they really relied on family ties and family connections as the basis of our political organizing. Now, this is not to say that other groups didn't do this. They did, but I would argue that Ngo Dinh Diem's family used it to a far greater extent. So I think this explains some of the nepotism that we see in the Republic of Vietnam under his rule, that his two brothers were his political advisors and and played these sort of informal roles as the head of his secret political party, that his sister-in-law was the unofficial first lady, that his another brother who was a bishop also was very influential, that another brother was an ambassador to the UK, that his you know, various family members were placed in important roles in the government. I think that this is something that all political groups did to a certain extent, but he did it to the greatest extreme. You show that that Ziem is in no sense a, a liberal, and he in fact kind of essentially tries to set up a, a one-party state. But besides this this anti-communism, there's this really quite so peculiar European political philosophy, which you just touched on a minute ago, that not many people today, I think, would know much about this, which became the official ideology of the Ziem re- regime: personalism. What was personalism, and why was Ziem attracted to it? I think Ngoden Ziem and his family were attracted to personalism because it offered them an ideology that they thought could be sort of a counterpart or could be a weapon to fight communism. So one of the great problems that anti-communist nationalists often felt like they faced was that the communists had this very rigorous ideology, they were very organized, and that the anti-communists, they needed something, they, they needed an overarching large ideology that, was gonna, that, that would bring them together and, and help them become as organized and with which they could offer as an alternative to communism. This was something that I think many anti-communists felt, not just the, the Ngo family. Ngo Dinh Yim's second brother, Ngo Dinh Yu, he was a very educated intellectual. He became interested in personalism. And some of the sort of defining qualities of personalism, and I want to stress that this is based on scholarship, often uh, much of this is based on scholarship that other people have done about personalism, is that personalism offered the sort of middle way between capitalism and communism, that it didn't believe in the sort of the selfish individual of capitalism that only is driven by economic desire But it's also not like communism, where it's the collective overpowering the individual. That personalism was based on the idea of the person, the idea of an individual embedded in a web of social relationships, not an atomized individual, but not a suffocating collective either. 
And they imagined that a personalist democracy was one in which sort of spiritually superior individuals would more enlightened than other people would try to create a framework so that each person in the society could fulfill their potential and would be able to fulfill their obligations to each other and to and to become their most become the most humane or most human that they could. What that looked in practice what often did not look very democratic because this idea of some individuals being more spiritually superior than others, well, how do you pick those superior individuals? Well, the answer that Ngodin Yim and his family seemed to come up with was rigged elections. So Diem is, is notoriously authoritarian, but then when, when you write about the various other anti-communist groups in the South, they're not particularly uh, liberal either. Why was liberalism apparently so weak amongst the various anti-communist groups in the South? I think in many ways, anti-communist nationalism in the RVN was sort of contradictory. It both wanted democracy, but it was also feared democracy. It both promoted democracy in some ways, but also wanted to limit democracy. And I think that contradiction is actually something that comes from the late colonial period. So if you look at republicanism in French colonial Vietnam, what you find is there is a colonial government, French colonial government that advocates for republicanism, but doesn't actually implement it in Vietnam. Most Vietnamese people who lived under French colonialism were not citizens, they were subjects. Very few people ever got to become French citizens, and only those people who became French, French citizens were allowed to vote, for example. Another aspect of republicanism under late colonial Vietnam that was very contradictory were Vietnamese advocates of republicanism, because many advocates of republicanism during the late French colonial period, they claimed they wanted republican reforms, but they were also nervous about giving everyone citizenship. Even many of these revolutionary parties who believed in democracy, they still sometimes argued that there needed to be a transition period during which the, the party would seize the government and rule through, you know, rule as sort of a, maybe a military dominated government, and then there'd be a transition to democracy. So I think this contradiction between that you see in the politics of the Republic of Vietnam is something that characterized republicanism in Vietnam from the late colonial period through to the RVN. Another theme that you explore in the book is the tension between which you've just mentioned, the aspiration for democracy in a liberal society, and at the same time, the need for, for discipline and, and order uh, in order to fight the, the communist threat to the, to the RVN. Of course, in retrospect, it's, it's easy to be critical of the authoritarianism of the Diem government and, and indeed the post-Diem uh, military regimes. But if we play perhaps the devil's advocate for a moment, do you think it was possible to build a liberal democracy under the conditions that the RVN found itself in in the 1950s and 1960s? I don't know that it would have been possible to do it right away, but that doesn't mean that it would have been impossible to do it gradually, eventually, slowly. I think what I would argue that despite how authoritarian Ngodin Yim was, his government did play a major role in spreading democratic ideas and often democratic ideas that looked a lot more like Western liberal democracy than personalism. For example, civics education textbooks for high school students in the Republic of Vietnam explained to students the difference between a parliamentary government and a presidential government. And it had it pulled examples from the United States and Europe to explain the differences between these political systems. 
I have to say, that was more than I learned about political systems when I was in high school in the United States. And so even though the government itself is fairly authoritarian, it actually played a major role in spreading democratic ideas. Or when the government made uh, public school students join or participate in parades or um, pro or government-sponsored demonstrations. In a way, we can see how if you're a student and you've been, you've been told to participate in a government-led demonstration, it also gives you an experience of how to be a part of a demonstration. And I think that the pro-democracy sentiments of the student movement that emerged or that erupted in 1963 that was very much against Ngoden Yim we can in some ways see that as the legacy of his regime. These were students who grew up learning about democracy in the RVN schools, and then they put it to practice. So it's for me, it's this great contradiction between a government that's not very democratic, but that preaches democracy, and in some ways it does so successfully. Another thing that strikes the reader as they read your book is the the intensity of the violence in the Republic of Vietnam during this period. It seems that almost on a weekly basis, people are you know, being assassinated, murdered, executed or tortured you know, in their hundreds, uh, both by the state as well as by the various political factions. And this is you know, well before the escalation of the war in the mid-1960s. How do you explain the intensity of the violence during this period? I think the intensity of the violence might be traced back to the origins of many of these groups as revolutionary parties. So during the colonial period, if you wanted to advocate for an independent Vietnam and you wanted to advocate it for it in a in a more forceful way than simply writing articles, the only thing you could really do was to join an underground political party. And joining an underground political party or becoming part of any underground group was terribly, terribly dangerous. The way these revolutionary parties managed to survive, in part, was through enforcing iron discipline, that traitors to the party are uh, executed, that anyone who wants to join the party has to be sponsored by multiple members. This is something that we often associate with the communists, but it was practiced by many, many revolutionary political parties. And I think some of this violence that we see in the Republic of Vietnam may be traced back to the political habits that these political groups and leaders learned during their time trying to oppose French colonialism. That success or that politics is something that often has to be enforced very rigidly and through violence and often requires unswerving loyalty. When you discuss the different factions in the South, the religious groups have quite a prominent role. Can you tell us about these different religious groups and their political thinking and their their role in the political process? Sure. So the two main groups that I discuss are the Gao Da and the Hua Hao. Both of these are religions that emerge in southern Vietnam in the years, in the decades before World War II. And both of them are in many ways very indigenous to southern Vietnam, that they're strongest in southern Vietnam, and they, they don't have a, they never had a strong presence in northern Vietnam. So the Gao Dai was is generally described as a syncretic religious faith that eventually the main branch was based in Thay Ninh province, which is near the Cambodian border. The Hua Hao was reformed Buddhist group that was based in the Mekong Delta. And both of these groups politicized and militarized during an 
before and during World War II, that they became involved in the revolutionary movement. They became interested in advocating for national independence, and they eventually formed militias and what later, I think, could well deserve to be called a, a full-blown army. And they did this partly to protect their own population during wartime, during World War II. They also received some assistance, not a lot, but some assistance from the Japanese during World War II. And after the end of World War II, they clashed with the communist-led Viet Minh, the sort of communist front organization that fought for independence. And they ended up fighting. So they, they fought the French. And later, they broke with the communists and, and fought with the communists and often allied with the French. When Ngo Dinh Yim comes to power, the Gao Dai and the Hua Hao are the two most powerful anti-communist groups in southern Vietnam. And that's why they're so important in, in my story, because they were the groups that were most able to challenge Ngo Dinh Yim's authority, because they had, they had the numbers, they had the sort of clout that very few other groups had in 54 through 56. And they have been largely, I think their political ideas have been largely ignored by other scholars, which is one reason I really wanted to spend a lot of, as much time as I, I could on them. Their documentary record on their political views is is thinner than I'd like. But one thing that I found really interesting was that the Hua Hao political party, it was called the Social Democratic Party, other people might translate as a Democratic Socialist Party, they adapted the Western European social democracy to the stratified agrarian society of the Mekong Delta. So they advocated things like land reform, like robust state intervention into the economy to help peasants and workers. I found their ideas really interesting. The ideas are really quite far to the left. And I think people often think of anti-communists certainly Vietnamese anti-communists as sort of right-wing or fascist, but that couldn't be farther from the truth. The Hua Hao was, were very, very far to the left. Another religious group that you discuss in the book is the, the Catholics. And I guess there's a sort of a view of the, the Diem regime that it was kind of pro-Catholic, but you sort of push back against this view a bit. I do. And, I, and I've learned a lot about the Catholics based on the scholarship of my friend and colleague, Jason Picard, whom, who I went to, who I spent grad school with. He's written this wonderful dissertation about Northern immigrants who went south um, in 1954, Northern Vietnamese who went south in 1954. That population was predominantly Catholic. For a long time, scholars have argued that Ngo Dinh Yim's government was pro-Catholic, that Catholics were dominant, and that Catholics really benefited under his rule. And my friend Jason Picard's scholarship really argues against that. And I think he's right, because what I actually find is that it's not that Ngo Dinh Yim's government was good for all Catholics. Rather, it's that Ngo Dinh Yim's family was Catholic, and they were nepotistic, and their family and friends tended to be disproportionately Catholic, and therefore they doled out government jobs disproportionately to their family and friends who were also Catholic. But it was not the case that all Catholics benefited under his regime, or that even the average Catholic was especially invested in him remaining in power. I mean, I think of anything, most Catholics who lived in South Vietnam during this time probably cared a lot more about kitchen table issues like employment or housing than they cared about Ngo Dinh Yim remaining in power. And there's also this, there have been many claims that some Ngo Dinh Yim's policies that Westerners find very odd, like the uh, the policy banning 
dancing or the policy banning divorce. So that came out of, that, that somehow came out of Vietnamese Catholics. And as far as I can tell, those policies came from Ngo Dinh Diem's own family and not from any other Catholic. If we could zoom out a little bit, towards the end of the book, you argue that your history of the RVN is a pushback against what you call the communist, I quote you here, the communist-centred and American-centred narratives of the RVN once favoured by researchers. Can you perhaps elaborate a little bit on what you mean here? Yeah, like I've sort of mentioned earlier, so much of the scholarship on modern Vietnam or the Vietnam War was really about the communists and about the United States. And if the Republic of Vietnam appeared at all, it only appeared insofar that it was important to those other big stories. And because of this lack of specific attention on the RVN, the way it appeared in scholarship was that it was an extension of American foreign policy, or it was a foil to the communists who were the true nationalists. But I don't think you can make a serious argument on the Republic of Vietnam without using sources that are from the Republic of Vietnam and without making it the center of your inquiry. And much of this earlier scholarship was often based on communist sources or American sources, but not on Vietnamese language sources from the RVN. I can imagine that the subject of your book might be somewhat sensitive to the government of Vietnam, but could I ask if you have any plans to translate and publish the book in, in the Vietnamese language, which might open it up to a, to a broader Vietnamese uh, readership? I don't think I have any plans to translate it myself. I do do translations from Vietnamese into English. I don't think translations from English into Vietnamese are my strong suit. However, one of the projects that I'm involved in is making available some of the primary sources that I used, primary sources in mostly in Vietnamese, but also some in French and English. I'm getting them typed up and I'm going to make them available on the internet. Uh, I plan to make them available at the website of the U.S. Vietnam Center of the University of Oregon. So I'm currently doing that. And one of my goals in doing that was making these sources available to Vietnamese speakers. Um, I grew, you know, many of my sources are Vietnamese language memoirs by Vietnamese living outside of Vietnam. And one of the things that really struck me when I was reading these memoirs is that many of them are arguing about history, they're recounting their historical experiences, but they don't have documents. Or sometimes they even mention documents and say, I lost this document, but or else I would put it here. And I was lucky enough to f- be able to find some of these documents. And so w- one of my um, what the one, a project I'm working on now is to make these documents available um, on the internet to, in part, to serve the Vietnamese speaking community. Have you had any? I know the book has just just come out, so this is maybe an unfair question. But have you had any feedback from Vietnamese scholars, uh, perhaps you know? within Vietnam or in, the, or in other parts of the world about your, the arguments that you make in the book? I haven't any, had any feedback from Vietnamese scholars or no scholars that are Vietnamese nationals. I've gotten feedback from scholars in the dia- who are diasporic Vietnamese, Vietnamese living outside of Vietnam, people like me who are born in Vietnam or who have parents who are born in Vietnam and who are in academia. I've certainly gotten feedback from some of them, but not from, not from uh, any Vietnamese nationals. Not yet, I should say. <laughs> okay, so as I said, probably unfair because the book has just come out. Okay, look, uh, before we conclude, we have a traditional question. You probably know we ask all our interviewees, and you may, perhaps you've already touched on this, but if you can perhaps elaborate a little bit more, what's your, your next project? So my next project is I would like to look at 
anti-communism a little bit more in terms of ideas. So this book is largely about republicanism and ideas about democracy. And my next project, I'd like to look about look at anti-communism, and I want to connect the discourse on anti-communism in the Republic of Vietnam to anti-communist policies. I have done some preliminary work on this. My thinking is that anti-communism in Vietnam and the, the emotional strength of anti-communism in the Republic of Vietnam, and it was emotionally strong among certain sectors of the population, that strength comes from terrible experiences living under communism. However, anti-communism also became a justification for doing really terrible things to actual and suspected communists living in South Vietnam. So I want to draw out the connection between the experience of the anti-communism as a response to the horrors of communism and then becoming a justification for enacting horrors on others. Well, we'll look forward to uh, seeing what comes out of that fascinating project. Uh, Nguyen Tran, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of New Books in Southeast Asian Studies to discuss your book, Disunion, Anti-Communist Nationalism and the Making of the Republic of Vietnam, which is actually hot off the press from University of Hawaii Press. I think it came out, was it last month? Yes, it officially came out at the very end of February. Great. Thanks very much. And you've been listening to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Thanks again, everyone, for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, then you might also be interested in other episodes that deal with the modern history of Vietnam, uh, like Sean McHale's First Vietnam War, Sovereignty and the Fracture of the South, 1945 to 1956, or Olga Draw's Making to Vietnam's War and Youth Identities, 1965 to 1975. And you can download or stream these interviews and thousands more free of charge via the New Books Network website or iTunes. 